Let's pray together. Father, this past week, as you do each week, (coughs) you have given us opportunity to be filled with thanksgiving and praise. You've given us opportunity to live our week honoring you. You've given us opportunity, dear God, for other people to see you and us, a people who have been blessed by grace, a people who have experienced mercy, a people who by your loving hand have come to know you through Jesus. And Father, all of that is good reason for us to smile and to have peace in our heart and for us to live for you. But Father, I feel sure for myself and my brothers and sisters that There have been times this last week when we have frowned at life, when we have been critical of the things that have happened and that we've been critical of other people. Father, help us to know that you can take care of the problems in our world. We don't have to personally fix all of them. And know, dear God, that you want us to walk by faith and to trust you and to find joy in this life. Father, if we're not doing that, please forgive us and please help us. There's so many good things around us, Lord, and so many blessings, so many people that are being touched, so many people that are doing loving things for other people. I pray you'd help us find joy in all of that. Father, The country we live in, on the one hand, is a perverse generation, a generation that has turned from you and from the things that you desire for us, and they have turned from your son, Jesus. And there are all too many among us, Lord, who have accepted Jesus and yet resist your spirit because of the lifestyle we choose to live. I pray, dear God, that you'd forgive us. And I pray, dear Lord, that your Holy Spirit would sweep through us and through the other people of this land, that there truly might be a revival in the United States of America. I pray it would begin with the clergy in our country, and I pray, dear God, that you would surrender us, that we might be open to the moving of your Holy Spirit, And I pray, dear God, that your church would praise you and exalt you in worship and have a real desire to serve. Father, every Sunday when we come together, we are reminded of those that are away from home. For those, dear God, who are in the military and those who serve in the police and a whole variety of other vocations, for nurses and doctors, We pray for them, Lord, and pray that you would use their separation as a time to draw them closer to you. We pray, dear God, for our children and our grandchildren who are away in school and pray that they'd not be away from you and that we could still reach out and touch them and be a witness and encourage them. We pray for our church and ask you to continue to bless our church. We thank you for the beautiful things that we see happening in people's lives. And pray, Lord, that you'd use us, that we might not only be blessed, but that we might be a blessing to others. Father, every time we come together, there are folks who are facing grievous situations. Situations, dear God, that challenge physically and financially and emotionally and even psychologically. We pray your help. We pray for your peace right at this moment. That through the presence of your Holy Spirit, you would give counsel to them and give peace to them. And help them and all of us remember that you are a sovereign God working your will out. And not even Satan himself 
can stand against you and your will. I thank you, Lord, for loving us. I thank you for giving your son, Jesus, that through his death and through his atoning blood that our sins are forgiven. And I thank you that that has secured a place in heaven for each one of us. Please, Lord, help us to live lives like heaven-bound people and not like the people who are destined for this world. Thank you, dear God, for that love. And thank you for Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd invite you to open your Bibles with me. We're going to be studying this morning from the Gospel of John, the 16th chapter. The Gospel of John, the 16th chapter. We're going to start our study with the 7th verse and study through the 15th. The Gospel of John, the 16th chapter, beginning with the 7th verse. Once you've found your place, please put your finger in your Bible and look up. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Let's pray. Father, humbly we come to you asking for your Holy Spirit to now open your word for us. For us to be able to understand things that we would not otherwise understand. And to think about things that we might miss. And for us to take those things and cherish them in our hearts. And take them home with us and live with that assurance. And with that as a guide for the week. So I ask you Lord to bless this very special time. In Jesus name. Amen. A little brief history. 1906, Los Angeles. A group of folks, just folks like us from a church, were getting together routinely in a prayer meeting. They were meeting in someone's home. It occurred that someone said, why don't we begin praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And they began to do that. At a subsequent meeting in that same home, as they were praying for the outpouring of the Spirit, which is what I prayed this morning when I pray for revival in our country. In essence, what I'm saying is, Lord, loose your Holy Spirit. Let him sweep through this country. Well, as they prayed that, one or more began to speak in tongues. I remember when I went to seminary and I heard about glossolalia speaking in tongues, I had no idea what they were talking about. But I quickly found out, because I went to a prayer meeting on the campus of that seminary, where about 65 students were gathered with their spouses, and many of them spoke in tongues. After a while, that group that was meeting in that home, the group got so large they could no longer meet in the house. So they went to an abandoned Methodist church on Azusa Street in Los Angeles. And they continued over a period of years to meet and to pray together for revival, for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What resulted from that is kind of interesting historically. A few denominations that already existed began to grow numerically because they identified with that manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Some other denominations came into existence. We call those Pentecostal denominations or Pentecostal churches or I think a mistitle, Charismatic Churches. I would like to think that we're a charismatic church. One of those denominations, the Assembly of God, as an example, in the 1920s had about 50,000 members and was growing like a house of fire. 1960, 
more than 50 years later. An Episcopal church, St. Mark's in Los Angeles again. The pastor or rector of that church and a group of people were in prayer and had the same experience. And now for the first time, that Pentecostal movement is moving into mainline Christianity. And it began to spread across our country. By the early 1970s, many mainline churches and their institutions had a great many people who would have called themselves or did call themselves Pentecostals. The seminary that I went to, which was a very orthodox, traditional seminary in Decatur, Georgia, Southern Presbyterian Church, about a third of the student body identified with the charismatic movement, which created some interesting situations. It divided us into three very distinct groups in that seminary. When I was in my first church in Texas, 1978, I was invited to a Presbyterian charismatic fellowship meeting of the Gulf, Gulf Coast chapter. And I found out that there were about 2,000 people, many of them Presbyterian ministers, who were members of that particular chapter. I also found out that they had chapters all across America, and I didn't know it had become that well-networked. And also, they had set up a national director and an office and a staff to man it. And somehow, many of us in the church did not know that was going on. I attended one of their meetings in southern Texas. And it was a bunch of Presbyterians just loving the Lord. What that had done in the 70s and 80s is it caused a great deal of unity among some people in tremendous diversity and division with other people. And many of the Protestant mainline denominations took a position and said, the gifts that are miraculous gifts, healing, speaking in tongues, interpretation, casting out of demons, all of those attention-getting kind of gifts, they said they ceased at the end of the New Testament period in many denominations took a very hard position, including Presbyterian denominations, which continued to divide Christians. I'm not suggesting the right or wrong of any of that. I'm just trying to tell you what's happened over the years. 2013. I went back and looked this week, and the Assembly of God Church today has over 3 million members. While it's been growing since the 1920s from 54,000 to 3.1 million, Presbyterianism has lost over a million. The Lutherans, all branches. The Episcopalians, the Church of Christ, the Disciples of Christ, all of them have lost membership. Numbers are not necessarily a sign of orthodox biblical doctrine. But you know what numbers do? They ought to get our attention. And I think we ought to say to ourselves, have we ignored the biblical Holy Spirit in our churches and in our particular lives. Do you understand the question? Have we retreated so far from what has been called the Pentecostal movement that we backed off the cliff the other way? For the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity. And what I want to do this morning is I want to give us a biblical glimpse of the Holy Spirit and what God intended when he sent his spirit to us. And if you hear something that gets your attention and you say, well, you know, I haven't given enough time to the spirit. 
I haven't worshipped him as I have worshipped the Father and the Son, and one of our confessions tells us to do that, then I hope we'll make some changes in our own personal life. The passage I chose for today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 16, starting with verse 7. Listen very carefully as God speaks to us. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you no longer can see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Interesting time in the life of Jesus and his disciples. And you start to sense this as you read verse 7. Jesus has been preparing them. He's told them on three different occasions that he's going to die. He's explained why he's going to die. He's going to die for the sin of the world. He has explained to them that he's going to leave them that he's going to be raised from the dead and going to ascend back to the Heavenly Father. And the effect of that on the disciples is that it saddened them because they didn't want him to leave. They didn't want to be without him. So what he does is he begins to talk to them and says, let me tell you what a wonderful thing is going to happen. You are going to be persecuted and you're going to be encouraged to get out of the temple. Religious circles aren't going to embrace you. Your historic religion is not going to embrace you. And you're going to be persecuted, and some of you will even be killed, and you're going to be killed for your faith, and the people who take your life are going to do that thinking they're doing the right thing. That wasn't good news, was it? He said, but the good news is, if I go away, I'm going to send a helper to you. And I must go if he is to come. Jesus said something else to him a bit later in the passage. He said, you know, we've gotten to the point where you can't listen anymore because you're in overload. I've been giving you all this revealed knowledge and you've gotten all of it you can take right now. And so what he's saying in part is I'm going to send the spirit of truth to you. And as it works for you, he's going to continue revealing things to you. He's going to continue to grow you up and to nurture you and bring you closer and closer. When you look down at the 8th through 12th verses, it starts talking about what the Holy Spirit does. And I want you to know, this is precisely what the Holy Spirit does in your life and mine. Folks, this morning, when we read the responsive reading, I sat back here and I thought, I wonder if we're personalizing this or if this is just an academic pursuit. It says, I will ask the Father and he will give another helper that he may be with you forever. That's Jesus talking to us. Very intentionally, he's given his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit's not going to depart from us who are believers. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be with you. 
If you know Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is alive and well inside of you at this moment. And there's all kind of potential when we start to realize that God is with us and that God's ministering to us. He goes on and says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. When the Holy Spirit comes to us, God the Father and God the Son is with us. Just as Jesus was physically with people some 2,000 years ago, he's still with us today. He's still very much a part of our life. And he does that through the Holy Spirit. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. We are not dependent on his physical presence, for he is with us at this very moment. As you start to look at how he manifests himself, John tells us, or Jesus tells us through John, that what he's going to do is come and he is going to convict us. You know what convicting is. We put it in a judicial category, and we think of someone standing in front of a judge, and the judge says, the jury has found you guilty, and you're convicted. And then there's a sentence that follows that. In a spiritual sense, what is being said is, the Holy Spirit's going to come on you, and the Holy Spirit is going to reveal something to you, and you're going to be so convicted about what he reveals that you're going to respond there's going to be a consequence. And he lists three things. He said he's going to convict you of your sin. Any of you remember pre-accepting Christ where people would talk about Jesus in your presence? And you'd wonder to yourself, why do people need Jesus? Any of you have that experience? Please. Am I the only one in the room? Thank you, thank you, thank you. I mean, that, that's a common experience for a person who doesn't know Christ. To say, what are these people doing? What's this Jesus all about? Well, what he's saying is the Holy Spirit, one of his functions is he comes from God and he comes to a particular person at a particular moment in life because God is calling that person and he brings that person under conviction that they are a sinner. And the way the sin manifests itself is in rejection of God, rejection of Jesus. Don't have time, don't have interest. And if you go back over into Paul's writings in Romans, the third chapter, you'll see very clearly the reason people aren't interested in God and aren't interested in Jesus is we are born into this world not understanding those things and not seeking after those things. That is our fallen state. Now he's saying, but I'm going to send my Holy Spirit and my Holy Spirit's going to come to you and my Holy Spirit's going to convict you that you're a sinner and that you need Jesus. Have you accepted Christ? If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, that first conviction should have happened in your life when you realized how helplessly lost with no hope of eternal life with Jesus and God and to realize that he is the one paid the price for us that we might spend eternity with God. He says there's a second thing that he'll convict you of and that's righteousness. When you think of God, and you think of the attributes of God, a God who is loving, a God who's compassionate, a God who's caring, a God who's involved and, and wanting to embrace us and bring us closer. When you start to think about God in those terms, you're talking about a righteous God, a God who never sins, a God who never changes his mind, a God who never changes the game plan. I have a college grandson who's bemoaning the fact that he entered college under a particular catalog and now he's a senior and they're saying, well, you've got to have some more courses. And he didn't understand that when he read the catalog when he entered college. God doesn't do that. God says, 
I want you to come and by grace, you're going to be mine. And he doesn't change the rules. When you read your Bible, you can trust your Bible. He doesn't change. He's immutable. He's the same every day. So he's a righteous God. And what he wants for his children is he wants us to be righteous. But no, not one of us are righteous. Romans 3 again. The righteousness comes when we know Jesus and he imputes it. He adds that to our account. And our righteousness is rooted in knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So what he's saying is the Holy Spirit's going to come on you and when there is unrighteous behavior in your life, the Holy Spirit is the one who will bring you to conviction so that you will want to please God and you will want to live more like God wants you to live. He said there's a third conviction. He says that what he's going to do is he's going to convict us of being guilty. He says to us, he's already done that with Satan. He's already pronounced the judgment on Satan. Did you all know that? Satan doesn't seem to act like that. But he does know. When we talked about demons, the demons knew who Jesus was. And they knew that Jesus had the power to torment them and to bring their existence to an end on this earth. They knew they were under his authority. That whole demonic realm has been judged. And they're going to be taken from this earth to hell for eternity and be put into the pit. Judgment occurs when a person rejects Jesus. Judgment occurs when a person is not interested in God and goes through life saying, I'm sufficient, I can work this out. Does that sound familiar? That's what Adam and Eve did. They said, Lord, we don't need your help. We can work this out just fine all by ourselves. And the end of that is separation from God. And he said that judgment is coming. So what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit, and my Holy Spirit is going to come, and he is going to be a convictor. And these are three ways that he's going to convict people. Do we need the Holy Spirit in our life? Do we need that promise to have been kept? Absolutely. Folks, if the Holy Spirit had not come and had not ministered to us by convicting us, not one of us would be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is absolutely and completely essential to our salvation. And God sent him because he loves us. If you look on down at the 13th verse, he says to us, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. There's a key word in there. I spent a prolonged period of time playing with this one word. It says, he will guide. It does not say, he'll shove you. It does not say, he'll force you. It doesn't say, he'll intimidate you. What it says is, he's going to guide you. He's going to reach out and put his influence on you. And he's going to bring you lovingly, where God wants you and I to come. You know how that guidance works? You're reading your Bible, and a phrase will jump out, and you'll start to think about that phrase or that statement. The Holy Spirit is guiding you into that consideration. And he begins to influence our thinking. And suddenly it becomes part of who we are, and we get it to fit in to all of our theology and we understand. When you're in prayer, have you had thoughts come to you? Not new revelation, but thoughts according to the teachings of Scripture. I can't tell you how many times I've come out of prayer and picked up a phone and called somebody. If you get a phone call from me like that, ask me, were you just in prayer? Because that happens all the time. 
What that is, is the Holy Spirit influencing us. He's leading us gently, lovingly, but he's leading us. Now, let me tell you the downside. If you're walking in the flesh, you're going to miss the leading of the Holy Spirit. If you've gotten yourself into some dark corner and you're not walking with the Lord and you're allowing yourself to be involved in stuff that is contrary to that which pleases God, you're not going to be sensitive to the presence of the Holy Spirit when he moves in your life. And you can go through all of life thwarting the Holy Spirit, repressing the Holy Spirit, quenching the Spirit. You can go through life doing that, and what happens is you, because of choices that you have made, are out of touch with the one who wants to lead. And he always wants to lead to bring us closer to being what God wants us to be. We haven't arrived yet. Folks, if there's something in your life that's a spiritual roadblock, kick it out of the way. Get rid of it. Do something about it. Ask for help. Do something. But don't go through life missing the leading of the Holy Spirit because that's an act of a loving God saying, let me get my arms around you and let me love you. Is the Holy Spirit essential to us? We need that leading. Without him, that connection between God and us would not exist any other way. If you look on down to the 14th verse, the 14th verse says, He will glorify me, Jesus, for he will take of mine and will disclose it all to you. I said this morning in our inquirers class, and I say this often, if you understand what God has done on our behalf, when you walk down that aisle and take a seat on Sunday morning or walk up here like I do, it'll change all of worship for you. If you understand how graceful he's been, if you understand that you're the recipient of his mercy, it'll change how you worship. It'll cause you to want to praise him. What's being said to us is the Holy Spirit is going to take a spotlight and going to shine it right on Jesus so you and I can see him clearly. And the Holy Spirit is going to bring him into focus for us so that we, like the Holy Spirit, will glorify him. We're Presbyterians. I'm not suggesting a change in our worship. Clearly hear that. But you and I need to be glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ when we come in here. The word glory comes from the word dox, D-O-X-O, doxo, doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. You see the continuity? When we come in here, there ought to be a smile on our face even if we're carrying burdens. Because we're coming before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he has made the way clear and he has invited us to come. And we ought to come in praising him in a Presbyterian way. And we can do that. This ought to be the highlight of our week. To stand before him and say, thank you, Father. Thank you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for persevering with me. Thank you for preparing a room and putting my name over the door in heaven. Secure and locked down for me. Reservations made. We have so much to thank him for. And then daily, if we allow him, he will work in our life through his Holy Spirit to help guide our life and to influence us so we make the decisions that help us go where he knows is best for us. Reason to give praise to him? Absolutely. Praise God. 
praise Jesus. He's our Savior. And that's good stuff, isn't it? Let's pray together. Father, your Holy Spirit is with us at this moment. Your Holy Spirit is with each one of us who know you because you've given your spirit. And your spirit has and will continue to do the very things that you want him to do. His whole agenda is based on you and your son. And he's continuing to speak to us and encourage us and continuing to help us know how much we're loved. This table is a reminder of all of that, Lord, for it's set at a very high cost through the death of your own Son, Jesus the Christ. And we're here to be reminded, and we're here, dear God, to give thanks. So I pray that you would set these elements aside, and that your Holy Spirit would work through these elements and minister to us this morning. For I ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I got to tell you, I love the words I'm about to read to you. Beloved in the Lord, hear what gracious words our Savior Christ saith unto all who truly turn to him. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. I always want to stop right there and say, folks, if you have something in your life that's deserving of you being thrown aside by God, that's not what this is all about. This is an assurance that he loves you even though you and I are sinners. And he's here to encourage us to walk with him and to let him be Lord of our life. But he's not throwing us away. He goes on to say, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled, a promise. You don't have to invite the Holy Spirit to come. He took up residence when you professed Jesus. It's not a second touch. You've been touched. He's with us. Our hymn is hymn number 390. Let's stand and sing the first and second verses. Number 390.
Scripture gives a warning to us. If we have been resisting the Holy Spirit in our life, we need to not come to this table unless we repent of that. So if there's a specific sin in your life and you have not yet asked God's forgiveness and you're not prepared to give it up, I encourage you, let this element go by you. Forget about people sitting around you. It says you'll bring judgment on yourself. You don't want that. But as repentant sinners, this is a place to rejoice. As a perfect person who's not perfect, but who is loved by God and who wants to walk in the Spirit and is repentant, these elements are set for you. You understand? To come to our communion, you have to meet a couple of requirements. One is that you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Fundamental, essential to all we do together. Number two, that you are a member of his church, not uniquely this church, but of his church, and you're in good standing with that church, and that that is a gospel-teaching, Bible-preaching church. That is said in part because some churches exercise discipline and they do suspend indefinitely or definitely people from taking the sacraments. If that applies to you, then please do not take the sacrament. Our practice is that our elders will come and they'll bring the bread to you and distribute it. I ask that you hold it and not take it so that we might do that together as a family. It's just a precursor to what's going to happen in heaven because we're his family and we're going to be together and share together in heaven. And then we'll do the same thing with the drink. We'll distribute it and ask you to wait that we might take it together. Go back with me. Jesus is in the upper room. He's got his disciples around the table. He's just washed their feet acting as host. They're going to take the Passover together to remember the grace of God. Jesus picks up a loaf of bread, and as is the tradition, he breaks that loaf of bread, and as he breaks it and starts to pass it, he said, this is my body, which is for you. So you take and eat of it in remembrance of me. After they had shared together in the supper, as is still the tradition in much of the world, they shared in a beverage. And Jesus poured out for them wine, and as he poured that wine for them, he said to them, a new covenant has been poured out in my blood for you, for the remission of your sins. He's saying, I have atoned for your sin. They're washed away. God's not going to hold them against you anymore. Things are right between you and God. I encourage you as our elders bring the elements to you to be in prayer. Let it be a prayer of thanksgiving in a prayer of real joy because of what God's done. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you, brothers.
body, which is food. And you take and eat of it in remembrance. You know, all of us are dependent on physical food to sustain our physical life. In the same way, we are very much dependent on God providing for us the spiritual substance that will help us live eternally. That is what he's done through Jesus. Take this and eat of it in remembrance of what God has done.
You see the empty cross behind me? You see the light that illuminates it? You know what the hope is? The hope for sure is in Jesus. He has taken our sins and he has washed them away. Take and drink of this in remembrance of him. Let's pray together. Father, we have much to give thanks for. For our Heavenly Father that has created us for a Savior who has lived and died and lives again for us and for a Holy Spirit that dwells with us from now through eternity. Dear God, we thank you for the gifts you have given and we are here today to praise you and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Oh, excuse me. And let's do stand. Hymn number 390. Hymn number 390. As you go into the world, remember the one that lives in here. It's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. Let him lead you. Let him encourage you. And feel his love and his presence every moment. God be with you, my friends, and God keep you until we meet again. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.